Welcome to the Raising Great Kids podcast. I'm your host today, Kendra Fleming. Today we're interviewing David Thomas about the important emotional milestone of resourcefulness. How do we help our kids gain the skills to navigate the obstacles of life? It's so great to be here with you today. Thanks for joining us. I am so thankful to be back with you. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. So parents, today we're talking with Dave Thomas, the co-author of Are My Kids on Track? A parenting book that just walks you through all the milestones, both emotional, social, and spiritual, and what your kids need, uh, the skills they need to be on track. And today we're going to focus specifically on the emotional skill of resourcefulness. So David, I'm so Glad you're here, and I'm excited to dig into this topic. Okay, so let's start. What are some of the stumbling blocks that you see for boys as they are uh, dealing with this skill or gaining this skill of resourcefulness? So one of the stumbling blocks that I think is tempting and instinctive for a lot of boys is a pattern that we call anchoring. And it's something, quite honestly, is instinctive for every one of us as human beings, and it's it's all the way back to that age old saying of misery loves company. I remember hearing my grandmother say that for the first time when I was like <laughs> years old. And I think that's true in terms of our emotional journey. If I feel yucky on the inside, I kind of like to tie an anchor around your waist and drag you to the bottom of the lake with me. I want you to feel yucky with me. And again, that being an instinctive response, that will stay an instinctive response unless we teach toward, train toward, coach toward resourcefulness, where boys are developing coping skills and strategies to do what we call self-soothing, to settle my brain and body is, is a, a really simple, clear way, I think, to, to speak to what we're trying to accomplish within that, taking the emotion to something constructive. So I do think that tendency with anchoring can be, well, it, it can happen in both directions with parents. Boys can anchor strongly to a mom or a dad. I would I would encourage any moms listening that uh, boys tend to anchor the strongest to you and safer a boy feels with his mom and moms tend to be oftentimes the center of a boy's universe. The safer he feels, the more tempting anchoring is. And so at the end of the day, if we think about, you know, taking the emotion to something constructive or problem solving our way toward a solution, if we continue to support the pattern of anchoring, we're basically doing all of the problem solving for him. Instead of developing resourcefulness, we're becoming his resources. Mm-hmm. Sistine, I have a friend who once said, you know, as, as a grown up, she said, I wish over my growing up, my mom had spent more time saying, you've got this, mm-hmm. then let me get this for you. And if we do too much, let me get this for you with boys, the problem solving of their emotional journey they simply won't develop a really strong, skillful, emotional muscle of resourcefulness. So we want to pay very close attention. I challenge moms to think about it a little bit like the game of tug of war, that mm-hmm. when he's struggling, what on one level, what he's doing is wanting to play tug of war back and forth. And as long as he can keep you in the game of tug of war, yeah. you're bringing his resources to some degree, you know, whether yeah. that's him negotiating, manipulating, revisiting the question, whatever it may be, We all know that when one person drops the rope or sets the rope down, the game of tug of war is over. Mm -hmm. So think about it a little in that way. Now, we're not going to throw the rope down and leave him without any Mm -hmm. options or skills, 
we're only going to be setting the rope down once we've done a lot of what we call co-regulation of really training him in the direction of building these skills, helping him develop what we call in the book, a top five list of coping strategies, which we can talk more about in a few minutes. But that co-regulation is a little bit like, I'd encourage parents listening to think about the journey of teaching a kid to ride a bike or swim in a pool. You know, when, when kids get their first bike, we don't just hand them a bicycle, send them out in the driveway and say, let me know how it works out for you. Like, we're going to be running along beside them and holding the handlebars. We're going to be running down the driveway or street with our hand on their back as they're learning to ride a bike. We're going to be right beside them in the beginning. And then even when we're not beside them, we're going to be watching them from a close distance. And if they fall off, as kids will do, we're going to comfort and support and then help them get back on the bike and take off again. Mm-hmm. But we're engaged in the process until they learn to bike ride on their own independently. Yeah. See training toward resourcefulness in the same way. There's going to be a lot of co-regulation with kids in the beginning, moving them toward doing the work of regulation themselves. But we're not dropping the rope on day one. We're doing a lot of being present with them in the beginning, teaching them those skills. I also challenge parents to be modeling the skills all throughout because a lot of kids, when we're trying to break that pattern of anchoring, we'll try really hard to get back in the game of tug of war because again, it's instinctive, it's familiar. It feels easier, quite honestly, to have somebody else do the problem solving for me. I often use the example of sitting with kids doing difficult homework. Every one of us as parents knows what it feels like when we've got a lot of math (laughs) problems on a worksheet and it's late at night and we're kind of melting down and you're thinking to yourself, okay, you know what? I could just give these answers and we could get this done and wrap it up. We all intended there. We know what that feels like. We also know that if I just fill in all those answers, they don't get the benefit of the learning. So the same is true in this journey. If I'm doing all of the problem solving for them, they're not building resourcefulness. Could I give you a real quick brain 101? This is something any parent could do right now with any kid of any age. Yeah. I'm going to give you a little free counseling because (laughs) three appointments with any kid, I'm going to do a little of this teaching and training because I believe it's this important and foundational. But with younger kids, I'm going to simplify. With adolescents, I'll give a little more information. But basically, the Cliff Notes version would be this, that there is blood flow moving throughout our brains at all times. For any one of us, when we're calm, it's moving front to back, side to side, primarily hovering around the prefrontal cortex, or as we've read a lot about the frontal lobes, which do two really important tasks as we think about our emotional journey. They help us think rationally and manage our emotions. Now, when we're emotionally charged, let's say when worry sets in, most of that blood flow moves to the back of the brain. And with really young kids, we might have them name the front of the brain, like, my thinking brain and my dinosaur brain. And so making it as simple and easy to understand as possible. When that, when that blood flow is primarily hovering around the dinosaur brain or the amygdala, mm-hmm. that's the fight or flight or freeze part of the brain. I'm not capable of doing those two important tasks. I can't think rationally and I can't manage my emotions. And a, a mistake that we can make as parents is trying to do a lot of teaching or coaching or instructing in those moments. Okay. And that information is falling on deaf ears. It's not possible for kids to absorb that instruction, that coaching, that teaching, if they can't think rationally and manage their emotions. And so our only objective really should be, and this is part of that assessment piece, getting the blood flow from the back to the front. 
And that's back to that top five list. Let's create some strategies, some tools, some skills so that we can move that blood flow from front to back and we can start to think rationally again. We're back in our thinking brain instead of our dinosaur brain Mm -hmm. or our emotional brain so that we can do some things that, again, settle the body and brain in important ways. So our body's going to send us a lot of signals when the blood flow is hovering back around the amygdala. In fact, we know that in that moment, in terms of our body response, our pupils dilate so we can see danger far away. More blood flow moves to the larger muscles, so we're tensed and ready. In fact, our stomach even jumps on board. There's less digestive activity going on, so we preserve energy. Now, that's a great posture to be in if I'm about to fight off a grizzly bear or I encounter a rattlesnake somewhere, but that's not a great state to be in when I'm working through the disappointment of my parents saying, I've got to turn off the iPad. Mm-hmm. Well, my younger sister has just done something that made me really frustrated. Mm-hmm. We've got a transition from a fun board game to bedtime. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be in that heightened aroused state at that point. I've got to be about the practice of settling my body and brain if I'm going to be able to navigate that transition or move through that frustration or work through whatever emotional experience I'm having. So that assessment piece is foundational. Talk to me a little bit about like, what are the stumbling blocks? What are the things that you see that girls face as they are facing obstacles and you're trying to help them build that skill uh, of resilience in those moments, you know? I would say, strangely, one of the stumbling blocks is actually a strength. When we talk about how expansive a girl's emotional vocabulary is, you know, sometimes a stumbling block to moving toward the what to do part is that she just wants to talk and talk and talk about the feeling. She really doesn't want to move toward any any kind of action. Like, let's just sit here. In fact, we often have parents of young girls who are like, is there a time or a general window of time when I should stop listening and move? Or something else, because uh-huh. I want to be offering empathy uh-huh. and attunement and connection and all those things. But girls can stretch that out a little too long and too far at times. In fact, uh, Sissy, you mentioned her amazing book, Raising Worry-Free Girls. And I couldn't recommend that book highly enough to parents of girls who have daughters who struggle with some excessive worry or anxiety. But she breaks that book down into three parts. The first part is understanding. The second part is help. And the third part is hope. And we talk a lot about how girls really just want to camp out on the understanding. They're not interested in moving toward the help or hope sometimes. And so I would say that's a primary stumbling block. The other would be that there just are like with boys, a lot of girls who have big emotions that are so eruptive, they will roadblock that process. Or even that journey we described a few minutes ago, of kind of moving from the back of the brain to the front. I think because girls are so articulate and our ability to really um, rationalize with them is usually not always, but often intact. Mm-hmm. We'll move into that space pretty instinctively with girls. And again, her brain is not in a moment where she's able to absorb the information. So we hear a lot of parents of girls say like, I told her to, or I coached her or I recommended. And, you know, we end up having to say, I believe you. And you probably were saying great things, but her brain wasn't in a space where she could experience that and she could yeah. absorb those messages. So I would say, Girls tend to be often really skilled in the deep breathing practice. Once we teach that to them, they take to it easily. Mm-hmm. We call it square breathing with a lot of girls and we'll have them draw the shape of a square on their leg and they're going to breathe in on one line, breathe out on the other, breathe in on one line, breathe out on the other. And we're kind of right back to the shape of a square. We'll pause in each corner and they'll do that. We have so many girls who will say, I do that under my desk when people don't even notice before a time test or 
before a spelling test, before I have to give a presentation in class, you know, all these different moments where girls are going to feel elevated emotionally. So I would say that feels key in terms of yeah. the stumbling blocks.